You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Matthew chapter 15. We'll read the first uh, 11 verses here. Matthew 15 and verse, verse 1, we'll read down through verse 11. Verse 1 says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tra- tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites! Jesus Christ was not always politically correct. I'll just say that. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth the man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Today we'll be preaching uh, from a a lesson taught by Christ here in Matthew 15, um, preaching about the subject, do you have religion or do you have a relationship? Is it religion or is it a relationship? Let's pray. Father, again, we're asking for your help as we read and, and look through the Word, pray that you give me clarity of mind and that you'd help me to say only what I'm supposed to say this morning. If there are hearts in here who need the message of salvation, Lord, I pray that you would can start to convict them even now. And if there are those of your people that are going through the motions, God, I pray that you'd speak to each of us and that today would be a day that we make things right with you where they may not be right. Lord, bless the reading of your word and our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. The longer I'm married, the more I realize it's a miracle that men and women can actually dwell together in unity. I figured that would get your attention, maybe, if you're married. You might have gone through those moments at times. I remember one time when my wife came into my office, and she very specifically asked me a question And I answered that question, and then she asked me to do a very specific task, which I agreed to, allegedly. (laughs) So you know where I'm going with this, right? A couple of days later, she asked me about it, and I asked her what in the world she was talking about. And she rehashed the encounter in impeccable detail, right down to what I was wearing, where I was sitting, and I stood there in ignorance. And she remembered uh, the everything and even told me what I said. And I remembered literally nothing about the encounter. So, like many other times, I simply had to eat crow 
and take her word for it, but men, don't you think we ought to start asking for video evidence of these encounters? I think we should. You know, sometimes I wonder if my wife would prefer it if she could trade me in for a model that isn't as much work. I think of the things my wife has to put up with for me. I'll start with listening. I'm great at listening, I think, but it can be a struggle for men, can't it? Sometimes my wife will ask me a question about something important, something like dealing with the children on, about something or a task that I have to take care of or maybe how a phone call made her feel or something important. And I'm thinking about something important too, like, you know, who's winning the big game at the moment. And when I don't answer, I can tell she gets a little flustered. I think about the other, the other things that, that I don't do well sometimes, and that is maybe remembering. She'll ask me to run an errand or bring something home, and I get busy with something else, and I forget. And it happens. And on the flip side, my wife never forgets anything ever. You know how that is, men. Or communicating. You know, men find it hard to express themselves. I know I do at times. She'll ask me what I did during the day, and I'll tell her, not much, it was fine. And that's my answer for the day. And she'll have a much more detailed uh, rundown of the day at homeschool that day. You know, the differences are probably frustrating to my wife. And I wonder sometimes if, if she wishes she could trade me out for a different version of me. And I printed out a picture. It's a silly picture. It's when my son was first born. This is his very first tie. Okay, and I know this is low-tech, but I, I'm wearing my son's first tie, and it goes down to about right here. Just a silly picture that I took. But I was thinking, I wonder if my wife realized or thinks that her life would be a lot simpler if she could ever trade out this version of me for this version of me. You know, honestly, if you think about it, uh, he always listens. And, and he's a little bit shorter than the real thing, but she could probably make him do whatever he wants whatever she wants. You know, he, he doesn't leave a mess in the bathroom. Uh, he doesn't, there's really not much about this guy right here that would probably frustrate her too much like the real thing does. So she might would trade us out and, and think, okay, I've got a better version. I've got a, a better deal. I've got the better end of this deal here. There's a much less hassle with this one. You know, the real one, I was always cleaning up after him. I always have to iron his shirts. I always had to do all these other things for him. This one is low maintenance, low key. And I wonder if after deciding to do that someday, after a while, she might start to realize <clears throat> there are some things that she's also missing in the process. Because just, just having a picture of me doesn't bring to her what married couples enjoy. And that is the relationship part. There's, a, there's, there's something about someone else being there. There's the interaction. There's the relationship. What's special about a husband and wife a relationship is the communion, the fellowship that takes place. And you can't replace the interaction that a man and woman have in a marriage relationship with a photograph. And it wouldn't probably be long before my wife starts to realize that life is lonely without the relationship. And I might, she might even actually start to miss the real version of me. And I know that's a silly illustration, and I did it silly on purpose, but I'm trying to make a point today that I think this represents 
what people do with God all the time. See, God longs for a real relationship with mankind, but we often replace Him with form, something that represents Him but isn't really Him. See, God wants fellowship. It's evidenced by the simple fact that He created us and He placed us on this planet. He did it for a relationship of fellowship. That's why we're here. But instead of enjoying the actual relationship, many have replaced the real person, God, with religion, a form of God. In other words, for most people, for many people, their faith is not about a relationship with God. Rather, it's about religious form that seems easier or less hassle or lower maintenance up front. But in the end, it's as empty and lonely as living with a photograph. See, man's concept of religion is far different than God's, and we see that happening here in the first few verses of Matthew 15. The scribes and Pharisees were concerned, and I use air quotes on purpose, they were concerned about the eating habits of Christ's disciples. The scribes and Pharisees were the religious experts, they were the religious leaders during the time of Christ. They were well known for their zeal, especially in regards to certain parts of the Old Testament law. And they would make small principles huge things. They would add endless lists of rules and regulations. They were also the primary, in that day, the adversaries of Jesus Christ. He saw through their hypocrisy, and he preached against it, as we just saw in Matthew 15. He even called them out. Now, remember, these are the religious leaders of the day. And in front of all the people, Jesus Christ is saying, ye hypocrites, your whited sepulchers. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy in front of the people, and so they can't stand Jesus Christ. And this passage deals with washing before eating food, which was a firmly held tradition uh, based upon the demands of the Old Testament law of separation from Gentiles. So we know there are in the Old Testament, we could go and read them that there were laws and there were ceremonial washing if you had interaction with those that were the heathen. Understand, though, there's not a specific biblical command to wash in this specific way. The scribes and Pharisees have added this tradition to the law. They've even elevated their tradition above the law. Here's an excerpt from the writing of the scribes. My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than to the words of the law. For in the words of the law are affirmatives and negatives, but everyone that transgresses the words of the scribes is guilty of death. So they'd elevated their traditions above God's own Old Testament law. One who neglected hand washing after eating was, and I quote, as bad as a murderer. They were to immerse their entire body in water to be cleansed after Gentile contact. A vessel that was bought from a Gentile cellar was immersed, it was put into boiling water, it was purged with fire or polished. Christ points out their elevation of man-made tradition over the very law of God there in verse 3 when he said, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And then he uses an example, verse 4, for God commanded saying, honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. So, this is a command they were familiar with. In, Jew, in, in a Jewish culture, 
the son was obligated to take care of his parents if they were needy. That was, the, that was the obligation. That was the culture. Honoring your parents was an important part of their culture, as it should be in our culture as well. But the religious leaders had found a way around this obligation by ceremonial, ceremonially dedicating their money to the work of God, and that was dishonoring to father and mother, but excused in the name of God because they would dedicate it to God so that they didn't have to take care of their, honor or their father or mother. So they were saying, in the name of religion, I can break this law. Well, Christ condemns that action. By telling them they had nullified the commandment of God by tradition, he calls them hypocrites, he quotes Isaiah 29 when he says that, you, that your heart is far from me, there, you draw nigh with your lips, but your heart is far. And then he says in verse 9, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Their approach, what I want you to understand here, is their approach to religion made it empty and worthless. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you've made the, the traditions of men, you've elevated that to the commandments of God. He said, your worship, in vain, he says, in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. I mean, they, they had it all wrong. They came at it from exactly the opposite way that Christ intended for them. Their approach to religion made it empty, and it's so sad that people, and I think about this, that people that had the opportunity to look at Jesus Christ in the face, I, w- I would have loved to have that opportunity to see Him, just to see what He looks like, to be around Him, to interact with Him. And these folks did. The scribes and Pharisees were with Jesus Christ while He was alive on planet earth, and they looked Him in the face, and they heard His words, and they knew what He taught, and yet they still got it all wrong. And it's very sad, but they weren't the only ones guilty. See, mankind has always tended toward outward tradition. That's the way we assume that religion should be done. Why? Well, we place more value on things we can see. Uh, Appearance is important to most people. It's usually easier to do something than to be something. And I've found that out in my life. I mean, just because I can get on YouTube and watch how to change out my alternator, which I've made the attempt to do before, just because I can get on YouTube and watch a video on how to change it out, and I may even just randomly, by God's grace, actually finish the job and have a running vehicle, but just because I can do that doesn't mean I am a mechanic by any means. It's far easier, folks, and we have to understand this because this is how we are. It's far easier for us to do something than to be something. It's far easier for me to put on this suit and come to church and sing the hymns and even give in the offering and look the part. It's far easier for me to do that than actually to be a a disciple, to actually be someone that walks closely to Jesus Christ, to actually be someone that's in communion and has a relationship with Christ. It's far easier for me to play the religious game than it is for me to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's far easier. That's why that mankind has always tended 
toward outward tradition. The scribes and Pharisees did it as well. They had a tendency to do, and when they did, they got notoriety. We could read over in Matthew 6 that when they did their offerings, they gave their offerings and they prayed in the streets, they did it and they were seen of men. And honestly, they got attention for it. The Bible says they have their reward. And their reward is as fleeting, it's as long as the prayer. Once the prayer is over, the reward is the attention they get. But once that's gone, it's over. No more reward. See, God desires, and it's important for us to understand this today. God desires a heart relationship. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. That's why God said their heart is far from me. That's the way he wants our relationship with him to be. He wants it to be real. He wants our heart to be involved. And while man is impressed with the outward deeds, God sees why we do them. Don't misunderstand. Now, God is interested in what we do. And a lot of people excuse this, and they say, well, God, man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart, so it doesn't really matter what's happening on the outside. But I, I don't believe that to be true, and if you read your Bible much, you know that's not true. It's an excuse to do maybe what we just want to do. God is interested on the inside. He is interested about the outside as well. But he's much more interested that it starts on the inside and becomes evident as an outflow of our hearts that it becomes evident on the outside. It's kind of like this. I want my, as a parent, I have three of my children in here today. As a parent, I want my children to love me. Okay? Now, I also want them to obey me. And when they're young, I'm training them to obey. And sometimes the process is not fun. Honestly, the older they get, you still sometimes have to go through tough processes. And you want them to obey you. You want them to do what you ask them to. And when they're a child, you're just training them. And so in training them, you know, you're, you, you, you're teaching them in small ways, no, don't touch that. No, don't touch that. Instead of, by the way, as parents, instead of clearing your house out of everything that could be a danger, train your children to not touch it. And you'll do them much better in the end because you've trained them how to obey, how to behave without you having to be there all the time. So don't clear out all the trouble. Give them opportunities to get into it safely and train them. Okay, side note. Okay, back to it. I want my children to obey me as every parent here, and sometimes I just need amens to make sure you're still listening. Parents, do you want your children to obey you? Amen. Thank you. Three of, three of you do, and I'm thankful for that. We want our children to obey us. The, the younger they are, it's fine if they simply obey because they have to. When they're young, I want them just to learn to obey. We have a saying in our house, you have one job, obey mom and dad. That's your one job. Now, I also have a 16 and a 15 and a 12-year-old in here today. And if I was to go to them this afternoon and say, you have one job, obey mom and dad, and walk away, I think I would miss it because of their age. Because at some point, I want them to stop obeying out of duty. Duty. 
and start obeying out of love. I want a relationship with these young ladies here that is established with a heart of love. Not out of duty, not because dad said, not because mom's mean, or dad's mean, or mom, I didn't mean to say that, that slipped out. (laughs) I want them to grow to the point where they love me enough to obey me. And you know what? God is our father, and I'm his child. And he created me with the same capacity to obey not just out of a duty, but also out of love. And God wants a relationship with his people like you do if you're a parent with your children. He wants us to love him to the point from our hearts that we obey. And I'm thankful that he even gives us the opportunity to love him. Because so often I find myself obeying out of duty instead of obeying out of love. You see, the heart of our problem, the heart of mankind's problem, is the heart. That's what we're seeing here. True defilement, according to Christ, the Pharisees and scribes were saying, oh, they're going to eat with dirty hands and it's going to defile them. But Christ says, it's not that which goeth into the mouth which defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth. This defileth a man. Folks, listen, I'm just trying to get you to understand. It is not your circumstance that makes you do what you do and get in trouble and have tough times in your life. It's not your circumstance. It's not your upbringing. It's not your background. It's not your personality. The reason that we find ourselves in trouble, and especially in trouble with God, is because our hearts are defiled. We are sinners by nature. We don't sin because we were taught to sin by parents who didn't do a great job raising us. We sin, folks, because we are sinners. We have sin because we have a sin nature. And in this culture, I know that's not popular, and I know that's not the way that everyone wants to think, but that's the the truth from the Bible, Romans 5, 12. That sin nature has been passed along from the first man to each of us, and that's why we sin. It is sin, not dirty hands, that is the great problem of every person. It separates for us from the fellowship with God for which we were created. I mean, you think about it, in Adam and Eve, they weren't removed from the garden because they forgot to wash up before supper. They were removed from the garden because of sin. They disobeyed God's one commandment to not eat of that tree, and they did it anyway. And we have this problem of sin, and we know it. So here's the problem. We turn to works to try to solve the problem and appease our conscience, but our traditions aren't going to help us in the least with our sin. Right conduct is great. We should all strive for good behavior. But God looks on the heart, and He sees the still, ever-present sin. It's like, it's like getting a cut. If I get a cut on my arm and I get a major infection, and now I have an infection in my blood. So to solve that problem, I put a Band-Aid on the cut. Does that deal with the issue at hand? No. Because I have a deeper problem. I have an infection in my bloodstream that started with the cut. So covering the cut with a Band-Aid, maybe putting some Neosporin on it, doesn't help my actual issue. 
It hides what is the problem, and that's what men often do with religion. See, they know there's an issue. They know there's a distance between them and God. They know there's sin in their heart. And rather than make it right in the right way, they put a religious band-aid on it to cover up what's really happening. And religion has become a band-aid that doesn't really fix our biggest problem. You know the only way to fix it? If we're talking about blood, it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, God knew our problem from the beginning, and He implemented things that would temporarily help us to be right with Him along the way. We could read about those in the Old Testament. He instituted things like burnt offerings and sin offerings and sacrifices of, of these innocent animals as a way to appease His requirements for sin, but it was only for a time. See, when sin entered again, then more sacrifice was required And it was, according to the book of Hebrews, those things were a picture of the permanent solution that Jesus Christ offered when He died on the cross. So when the time came, God sent His own Son, Jesus, to die and shed His sinless blood and as a payment for our sin on a cross. And He died there in our place when we deserved to be hanging there in death. And because He's sinless, His sacrifice was and is the only permanent solution to that, ever, that never-ending sin problem. It's only through Jesus Christ's blood. Only the blood of Christ can provide the cleansing that every person desperately needs. There's only one way to deal with your sin this morning. But many are trying their own plans. But friend, let me just tell you, anything you do apart from Jesus Christ cleansing blood to take care of your sin problem is hand washing that doesn't touch the heart. And if I could say it this way, clean hands can't clean a heart. Clean hands can never clean a heart. Christ could see their dirty hearts, so He said it this way, they draw nigh to me with their lips but their heart is far from me. You know, the reason that a, a dirty heart is far from God is because He's holy, and He can't have anything to do with, with uncleanness. And I think, we, unfortunately, many people are content with that distance. See, God, Christ is looking and saying, these people draw nigh to me with their lip, but their heart is far from me. But I'm not so sure that's an issue for many people. I, I think probably there are plenty of people that are okay with the distance. Because the closer you get to the Lord, the more you feel convicted about your sin. See, as long as God, maybe they'll say, as long as God, from a distance, if He watches over me while I'm driving, or takes care of my, you know, these big problems out there. There was a song in the 80s, God is watching us from a distance. And I think most people are okay with that. Because the closer they get to God's Word and the closer they get to truth, the more convicted they are of their sin. No one likes to be convicted. No one likes those promptings from the Holy Spirit. So rather than sit through messages like this one, you know, they just ignore the promptings till they go away. And And I believe that God's people are just as guilty of this. There are some in this room that have called on Christ as your Savior. But listen, there's distance between you and God, and you know you're not close to Him. Your heart is far from Him, but you're okay with the distance. So when it comes time to listening and preaching, you distance yourself from the truth, and you distance yourself 
from those in the fellowship that can help you draw closer to God. And you distance yourself because when invitation comes, you find a reason to walk out the doors and go to the bathroom rather than stand at the pew and have to deal with God's promptings in your heart. And you're okay with the distance. There are plenty in this room, I believe, in rooms like this all across the country that are drawing nigh to God with their mouth. But their hearts, there's distance. And you know what we make up for that distance with? Religion. See, we know the distance. We know what's the problem. We know that we can't really make up for it uh, if we, unless we really have to change. So we put on the face. And we wear the right clothes. And we say the right words. And we do all the right things. And we go through all the right motions. I mean, we may even go to church regularly. You may even live a, a good lifestyle. You know, you don't, you don't cuss or get involved with the things that the, 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 the folks at work are getting involved in. And, and you, you try to maintain a good life. And you, you may even place restrictions on what your kids watch at home. You maybe even give to church whenever you have extra. Some are really dedicated. They always go to church, and they even give 10%. And they give to missions, and they give to the building fund. And some are involved in a bus route. Some go on visitation, and some are teaching in the back during Sunday school. And so others are out there trying to bring other people in. And we're going through the motions. And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad, but I am saying if all you have is those outward appearance, if all you're doing is hand washing and your heart is far from God, then I can tell you all of those works are not things that God is pleased with. He wants it to start with the heart. And if there's a distance between you and God, you can't fill the gap with religion. It's never happened before. It can never happen. Religion is simply an outflow of our relationship with God. It was never meant to try to make the gap up. And yet that's what we've turned it into. And that's what Christ is dealing with. That's what he's talking to them about. So let me ask you this. Which one do you have? Religion or a relationship? Child of God, maybe you started out with a relationship, but now it's just outward religion. You have all the appearances of being religious, but your heart is far from God, and the truth is, you may be sitting in a pew in this room today, and you're kind of content with the distance, because the further there is between you and God, the more distance that is created between you and Jesus Christ, the more you can live your life kind of how you want to, without it being interfered with, because the closer you get to Him, the more He stirs it up. So you just keep the distance. Let me just tell you this, you're missing so much. It would be like living in a home with your family and not ever once expressing love or knowing they love you, but at least they're obeying you. Okay, great. So if you want to live 40 or 50 years in a house where you never actually know that someone loves you, but at least they do the right things for you, how fulfilling is that? I'm telling you, from my perspective, that would be pretty miserable. Because love is the, the glue. 
Love is the connection. It is that heart of love that ties us to people. It's not just what we do for each other, it's how much we love each other. And I'm telling you, you are missing out on a life of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction if you are simply making up the gap between you and God with the religious activities that you're involved in. Jesus Christ wants you to have joy. He said in John 15, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be partially full. No, he said full. He said overflowing, abundantly. That's the kind of joy he wants for us. So what do I need to do to fix it? Well, remember our biggest problem is our sin. And very often, the reason we have got to the point where we are, where we're separated from Christ in our relationship, is because it started with a sin problem. So it starts with Proverbs 28, 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. First John 1, 9. But, whosoever, or, but if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There, I, I believe there are probably people in this room right now and there's distance between you and the Father. And you have religion, but you don't have a relationship. And it's time to get it fixed because that's the satisfying part. Once you're right with God, there's no other life you want. There's no, nothing else that makes you happy. Next thing we have to do after we've confessed is determine I won't be satisfied with distance. And anytime I feel it, I'm going to take whatever steps necessary to grow closer to God again. Don't be content with distance. Christian today, if you have distance, why don't you come close the gap by confession and then stop trying to cover it up with religion, make it real from a heart. Maybe you've, there's some in here, I believe, probably who've never had a relationship with God. Religion and good works, friend, listen, religion and good works, they're not going to help your problem. Salvation cannot be gained by good works. It can't be gained by baptism. It can't be gained by going to church. Whatever you were raised with, if you were taught anything different than the blood of Jesus Christ, cleansing you from your sin, and that is faith in that is the only salvation. If you've been taught anything else, then I don't know where it came from, but I don't think it's biblical. The Bible way, there's salvation. No other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. It is only Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Ephesians 2, for by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You couldn't do anything to fill that gap between you and God in your own works. You can't. God isn't impressed with our works. I mean, I think about that. What works could I do that even come close to a God who created the universe and set that thing in motion and then sent his perfect son to die for sinners and raised him from the dead when he didn't even deserve to die in the first place? What could I possibly do to impress a God like that? Nothing. Which is why he said there's no other option except my son. I have the only perfect plan. This is the only plan you can trust in. So place your trust in that plan through my son, Jesus Christ. See, my problem is not the absence of good works. The problem is the presence of sin. And only a relationship with Christ solves that issue. So how do you have a relationship? Well, John 3, 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You have to believe what the Bible says about you being a sinner and about God's plan, Jesus Christ, being the only way to save you from your sin. If you'll believe that and you'll place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this morning, then you can fill the gap, not of your own merit, not with your own works, but through the plan that God has put into place, Jesus Christ. And this morning, that gap can be gone just like that. The distance that you feel between you and God doesn't have to last. It can be fixed this morning by you simply believing what the Bible says. If I want to leave you, those in here who are not saved, you've never received Christ as your Savior, I'll leave you with a few thoughts. There's a book written by a man named Kerry Schmidt called Done. Maybe many of you have read it, probably ought to get some copies here to give to people. The idea of the book is there are two kinds of religion in the world. Those that teach you you must do to be saved, and those that teach that the work is already done. Either you believe, you're in one of those two camps, either you believe today that you have to continually do the work to satisfy God, or you believe that Jesus Christ has already done everything necessary. And all He asks of you is to trust His work on the cross. See, the problem with do religions like the Pharisees is, how do you know if you've ever done enough? How do you know that this is satisfying, this is going to appease God? Listen, if you place your faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, you never have to wonder again. See, clean hands can't clean a heart, but Christ can, and He will. And if you will simply acknowledge your sin and accept His payment and receive the person, you may have walked in here with a distance and a gap, but you can walk out as close as you want to be. See, trading religion for relationship may seem good now, but in the end, we'll regret it. In the end, the Pharisees, they were exposed. I mean, Jesus Christ said, verse 14, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. That's what happens with those that rely on religion instead of relationship. In the end, it's a path to destruction. So, was religion worth it? Well, the God of heaven wants a relationship with you. And that's more than I can say for the President of the United States. He's never called me up and said, hey, I want to hang out. He's never sought me out. Kings and rich men have never expressed a desire to know me. But God himself, the creator of the universe... He created me and knows me better than anyone. He wants to walk with me. See, whatever changes or choices you have to make today, I can promise you it's worth it. Why don't you come today at invitation time? Why don't you come trade your religion for a relationship? Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.